Oh, good morning. So last time we finished with thought on being yoked and unequally yoked and the, the very real and important challenge to live with, you know, God as our God and us being his people. And this, this idea of not mixing Jesus with things that are evil. So this is 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and 8. And remember, we're bouncing straight on from that idea that Jesus can't be mixed with things that are idolatrous, things that aren't of him. And we jump into chapter 7 with this call to purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and the spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So my first question for you guys reading this morning is, what does purifying our body and spirit mean to you? Is that something you reflect on and dwell on? Is it something that is left behind when you understand Christianity? So this whole notion here is that out of reverence for God, we have a choice to root out things in our lives that are contrary to Christ. And if we don't, if we think that when we become a Christian, God just waves a wand and takes out all our bad habits and everything, you know, takes all the choices away we could ever make that are bad, that's wrong. Now, God does say that, you know, in Christ we are made right, we are counted as righteous. However, if then from now on we are just robots living righteously that that takes away our individual choices so paul is saying to us look you got to live in a way that purifies yourself before god the call is to make our bodies and our spirit pure that's when we're going all the way back to romans where he talks about that so we live in a very unhealthy world and we have enough knowledge and opportunity especially in the west to have the healthiest, long, longest living and fittest lives than anyone else on earth. And at least 50% of the nation are either overweight or obese, and diabetes is on the rise, mental health is on the rise. And I'm not going to start this off by attacking anybody or jumping on the fitness train here, but it has to be said that there is a huge link between physical well-being emotional well-being, spiritual well-being, they all work in conjunction. The very definition of fitness is someone who is healthy in body and mind and heart. And it's something that we forget in the church. We never talk about this, this kind of actual this triune, healthy life. How we worship, we only see as in our emotions. Maybe we sing and we feel like we're worshipping. But worship is also to do with what we do with our bodies. Now, I'm going to jump right back. There is a famous verse from Deuteronomy 6. And it's verse 5, and you all know it. And it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So we've got the emotion, the heart, the soul, the spirit, our essence, or mind is another one. And with all your strength, so your effort, your physical choices. And the, the bulk of the chapter, chapter 7, is about Paul's joy that the church has repented. And repentance is something that we occasionally, it's not we don't miss it, that we, we don't stress it when we teach. And we receive the forgiveness from Jesus, the opportunity for new life in Jesus, and then... What comes next? What happens daily? Do we just do whatever we want because we've been saved? Because that's definitely a theology I've heard. You can do whatever you want because you've been forgiven. But if we take the Lord's love seriously, then daily 
we will need to be thinking and actually repenting of our bad behaviour. And it's not out of some self-flagellistic or self-hatred, but it's actually out of respect and reverence that God sacrificed for us, that God loves us. And we should be actually teaching and practising, repenting of our evil things we do to the Lord and importantly to one another. Now, there's a lot about the Catholic Church that I don't agree with. And part of it is the act of doing confession and needing absolving from the priests. But the practice of going and actually telling someone, say, look, I did this wrong, that's not bad at all. So if you look at chapter 7, verses 8 to 10, and read those two, what do you think has happened here? What do we understand by these verses? Do we allow correction and rebuke from our elders and our leaders when we sin? Or... Do we go on the defensive and claim that if we're criticised by someone in the church, you can't judge me? So Paul here, he has to rebuke the Corinthians. Now in 1 Corinthians, Paul rebukes them. And this is not saying he's he's hating them. He's literally, he's correcting them. Because their Christianity is as being confused by other faiths. And the practices they're doing getting a bit mixed up with other faiths in the area. And it's going to lead to some bad choices. And Paul, as the leader, is right to criticise. And some people might say he's judgy. Because any criticising nowadays apparently counts as judginess. But he's right to do it. And he clearly allows them to make the wise and humble choice to realise their sinfulness and then ask forgiveness. Remember, though, that simply saying the words, forgive me, doesn't mean anything if you are not actually sorry for what you've done. God's sorrow at our selfish ways has led the church to genuine repentance, which Paul says has made him happy. And it's not he doesn't make them happy because he hurt them. That's, that's weird. He says he's happy because he called them out on their sin and they honestly understood what they'd done wrong and were sorry about it. And godly sorrow leads to repentance Worldly sorrow leads to death. Now, he doesn't mean that people who are not Christians and are sorry for their sins lead to death. That doesn't mean that. What he's saying here is that true sorrow in our hearts will lead us to change our behaviour and be humble and repent. And he's kind of saying that worldly sorrow is much closer to competitive pride and anger. You know, how dare someone call me out? How dare someone make me lose? How dare someone make me question how great I am? You know, I'm sorry that I didn't win that fight. Therefore, I'm going to come back and win that fight next time. And he's he's calling out this idea that the truly weak and self-centered person cannot take criticism. They will lash out because their sense of identity has been called into question. And this is the, the world. It's competitive. It's selfish. Worldly sorrow is sorrow that is only upset because he's having to take second fiddle to someone else. Godly sorrow is the heart that is truly humble and knows when it has done wrong to others. So look at verse 11. Look at what humility before correction leads to. Paul says it's earnestness, eagerness to clear yourselves, indignation, alarm and then longing to see justice done. And it's justice towards those who are wrong. It's not justice towards yourself. 
So feel free to read to the end of chapter 7 as it tells us a bit more about Titus's relationship with Paul and the church. But let's just think about this idea of when we have been corrected or criticised or rebuked as a Christian. Do we respond with humility and really look at ourselves and say, yeah, I was wrong, I need to repent and ask God to help me change? Or, if you get corrected or criticised, do you go on defensive? Do you claim that no, Christians can't judge me and as a result I'm going to get angry and leave? Because I've seen that happen. And now we jump into chapter 8. And if you look at verse 2, Paul says... In the middle of a very severe trial, their joy and poverty welled up in generosity. So, Paul's talking about the church in Macedonia. And the church in Macedonia comes up in 2 Corinthians quite a few times. And it is a very strong example for all of us. This is a church that was very poor. And instead of giving barely anything, they gave more than any sane person would choose to give. In verse 4 chapter 8 Paul says they urged with us for the privilege of sharing and he's saying that what Paul would do is he'd go around and he'd take a collection or he'd send his disciples out to take a collection and then all that money would be collected and it would go to the churches in Jerusalem to help them out. This is a church that cannot give. They really shouldn't. If you are their, if you're their accountant you would tell them not to give and they are so eager to help their Christian brothers miles and miles away. They are urging with Paul for him to allow them to give. And in verse 5, Paul says, They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. Now, it isn't that they trusted that God would give them back their money. This is not what's happening here, so really don't make that mistake. This church are not going, hey, because we've given ourselves to God, We'll give everything away, we'll basically bankrupt ourselves, and God will definitely give us the money back. That's not what's happening. Or, in what's happening here, this is a poor church who are insisting on giving more than they can because they've given their hearts to God and they understand that other people are suffering, that other people have need, and their hearts are burning to help feed and host the church miles away and help the travelling apostles. Paul doesn't promise that they would receive their money back. He doesn't promise that they'll be rich one day. And that's a promise in the modern church. It happens all the time. Promises that if you give, if you're faithful and you believe and you give, then, you know, God will sort you out. Um, that's, that's the mildest form of that kind of preaching. He, the, the true heart of God is seen here in their deep willingness to give way beyond their means. Not to get it back. It's not an investment in the sense that we understand investment. It's just out of love. So look at verse 7 and 8. Now, although Paul is challenging the Corinthians, I really think this challenge sits at our feet as well. He says, Make sure that you also excel in this grace of giving. Because I want to test the sincerity of your love. Christians should not be giving because we expect to get something back. We shouldn't think we're called to give to test God or to invest in the bank of God. In Jesus, we are called to deny ourselves 
and give. That is, to think of all the things that I want to do that help me, that make me better. If you want to know what it's like to be Christ, deny that part of yourself and give. And don't think about when you're going to get it back. The love of God manifests in selfless giving, not in miraculous wealth. In verse 9, Paul says that Jesus, though he was rich, made himself poor, so that through his poverty, you, which is all of us, might become rich. And again, it's not rich in money, it's not rich in fame, it's being rich in love and compassion. And verse 14 gives us an idea of what the ideal church would be like. It says, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Having lots should always lead to a massive outpouring of giving so that no one person, no one church body ever has too much and so that no one church body ever has too little. However, if a person, or especially if a congregation, is so fixed on having more, having wealth, having numbers, having new stuff to get numbers, it will become harder and harder and harder to give generously without thought for yourself. Paul is effectively saying, look, don't wait to be rich to give generously. In Jesus, we have all the validation we need. In Jesus, when we're made poor, we can still give in his spirit so that when we even have more and more and more, we'll be able to give that also. The church network, the ideal church network, is the body of believers across the world that is always providing for each other rather than living in a desperate race to make itself plentiful. At least that's what's being instructed here. What do you think about Paul's words on giving, even when poor? And what challenge does that pose to those of us who have plenty? So read through verses 16 to 21. Paul closes up chapter 8 by informing the church that Titus, who is our brother, is being sent to them to receive the collection. And this is not a strong arm tactic. He's not sending like the heavies to come in to steal the money from them. He's sending people of good reputation.